I have up here is by a guy called Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called God Delusion a few years ago. He's a well-known guy. He's not a big fan of Christianity, as you can say it that way. He says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. That's what Richard Dawkins thinks about the Bible. But see, that's one view. There are many, many who have been around who love God's Word, and they actually believe in God's Word, and they find it reliable. One of my favorite um, person is by a philosopher by the name of Søren Kierkegaard. He was a 19th century philosopher, uh, he's from Denmark, he's Danish background. He says, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of skimming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. What about us in 2015? When it comes to the Bible in Australia, what do we view? What do we think about the Bible? Well, a couple of, a year ago, got a group called McCrindle, they did a research on the Bible, what Australians think about the Bible. Well, it seems that less than half of all Australians, 45% own a Bible. I don't know if that's physical or a, a co- like a phone version. It seems that less than one in three generation Ys, Gen Ys, that's 1980 to 2000, uh, that's about 32% own a Bible. Melbourne is the most livable city in the world, but it seems Sydney's beating us when it comes to Australia's Bible reading capital. They're accessing the Bible online almost seven times as much as Darwin. Really sorry, Darwin. Where is the most, uh, uh, the city or the suburb that seems to be uh, who's um, reading the Bible the most here in Melbourne? Well, it seems that Richmond in Melbourne is the nation's leading Bible reading suburb. 386 online reads per resident in 2013. Come on, kill stuff. We've got to bring it up. What do you think is the most uh, accessed Bible passage uh, that you would think of in the Bible? Well, it seems this Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, is the most accessed Bible passage. And John 3.16 is the most accessed Bible verse. It seems that all Australians who identify religion as Christianity in the sense only three in four own a Bible, and only one in four attend a church at least once per month. Now, I don't know what your view of the Bible is, and, and many of us here are followers of Jesus, and when it comes to the Bible, when we think about the things that we, taught, we were taught, in particular about Jesus and what he's done, do we take that as reliable? Do we believe it wholeheartedly? Maybe for some of us, we've grown up in the church tradition and it's just become information. It's something that we know, something I've heard about, something for those people out there. Maybe some of you are actually exploring that. In the starting few verses Nathan just read in chapter 1, in verse 4, Luke says something very striking to Theophilus, the person he's writing to, says that you may have certainty in the things you've been taught. Certainty that this is God's word. Certainty in the accounts of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And over the next few weeks, actually quite a while, we're going to take our time to go through the Gospel of Luke. But before that, Luke is just not on its own. It's part of a big story about God's story, big picture. 
So I need to catch you up to it because I don't know where uh, your story comes, fits into the story of how God saved you. But you need to understand, why do we get up to Luke's gospel? What is the point of this? Well, see, since the beginning, what happened was God created man and woman. And he called them to be under his loving submission, under his loving authority. He called them to love him, follow him, and to look after the world that he placed them in, to serve him. It was perfect. There was no sin. It was a beautiful relationship. But the first man and woman were tempted by Satan as he came as a serpent. And they gave into that heart, that temptation. And what it is, is this heart of saying, God, I've got this. I don't want your loving authority. I'm going to be my own authority. I'm going to be my own boss. And what comes in is sin. It's like a poison that has corrupted everything, all of creation, everything that we do. And from then, there's this gap. There's this broken relationship between man and God. There's separation, but God is still a God of gracious mercy. And from Genesis, he even said in Genesis 3, he's speaking to the serpent and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God had always had a plan and he brings in this plan and he says, I'm going to save these rebellious people. He speaks to Satan and he says, I'm going to stop this. And since then, the Bible is littered with accounts of God and his loving relationship with a rebellious group of people, in particular a group of uh, people called the Israelites. And the whole picture that God is painting is that, yes, he's a holy God, he's a righteous God, but he's pursuing a rebellious people in grace. And he sets up these laws and sacrifices who are called to live in holiness, set apart for to show that they belong to God. It was to show both his holiness, it was also to show how to access a relationship with him, but it was also to show the weight of sin and death and decay. But it was also to, uh, to show or to shadow of what is to come. And all through Genesis, all the way through Malachi, you have this uh, either direct uh, point or sometimes an illusion of this idea of a promised one, a messiah. God's son. So now we come to the Gospel of Luke. We arrive in the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospels, uh, if you have a Bible, you can see there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Luke's one of them. The Gospels are like an autobiography of Jesus' life while he was physically here on this earth. So the whole world has been waiting for it. The Gospel of Luke unpacks, this is the Messiah, this is who he is, and that's what we're going to be unpacking over the next few weeks. What we know is that the author, we believe that is Luke himself. Now, there are pe- people who may disagree on that, but I believe that this is Luke who's written this letter. Uh, he, Luke wasn't one of the guys who followed Jesus in that. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He probably came to faith later on. Uh, he's someone who was heard the gospel, responded to it. Uh, and what he's doing now, he's interviewing people. He's interviewing eye- most, most probably eyewitnesses all throughout this letter. That's how he's getting some of these facts. Now, Luke is not your average Joe. He's a fairly smart guy. How do you know that? When you look up Luke, you read a bit about Luke, you see that the language that he uses is fairly technical, it's formal. He knows what he's writing. He's a learned man. He's probably not a Jewish person. He's probably uh, the guy that uh, was a companion of Paul in Paul's mission ministry team. You can read that in places like in Colossians 4. He's, that's why they said he was a physician. He was a doctor. 
And part of that is also, you see in the Gospel of Luke, there are these uh, miracle stories. And in the miracle stories, the language that Luke uses is something that's only known to someone who's a physician or someone, the language that he uses, he knows what he's talking about. And Luke is actually part of a two-part series. You've got the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And he's written most of the New Testament. He's probably written quite a bit if you read, put all those together. He's writing to a guy called Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus, there's many uh, uh, aspects of who he may be, but at the heart of it is to show Theophilus, maybe he's a, uh, a Christian who's been challenged about his faith, to go, listen, Theophilus, you can trust what's been taught to you. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is go through this gospel. I encourage you to dive through it. It's a wonderful book. For those of you who are logically minded, this is a great book. For those of you who like sort of philosophy, you probably should read the Gospel of John. But if you like the Gospel of Luke, it's logical. It goes through this little stage by stage. And I would encourage you to take time through it. And also at a church, the reason why we teach God's Word and why we want to spend a significant time on this, it's not part of a religious tradition. It's not because we think that's what churches ought to do. Because our heart at the end of the day is for those of you who know Jesus to have your hearts refreshed again. The wonder and mighty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, our hope is that through this series it will either get you curious or at least move you closer to going, yep, I want to explore this a bit further. Or even one of the greatest things I hope is that your lives will be transformed and give your life to Jesus. Now, so we come to the people that are introduced in this gospel. Uh, straight away, we sort of set the scene in verse 5. It's the days of Herod, the king of Judea. And we're told and introduced to the first people of the story. That is, uh, we call him Zach and Liz, or Zachariah and Elizabeth, not the Zach and Liz that come to our church. They're married to different people, so that would just get awkward if that was here. Anyway, they're the first crew, Zach and Liz. That's who we're going to be talking about. Zach, or Zachariah, is a priest. He's, a, he's part of the temple. He's a good religious uh, Jew. He's uh, involved in ministry. And not only that, Zachariah and Elizabeth are getting on, uh, on oh, sorry, getting older. They're about to get their retirement card. But in all accounts, what we know about them is they're good followers of God. They have been keeping the laws. It says in verse 6 of chapter 1 that they're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all commandments and statutes of the Lord. And it's an interesting thing if you think about it, because if you go into that and think about it and go, well, here's a person who's righteous, who's doing all the commandments and laws that's, that's required of them, but yet they don't have a child? How does that work? If you had the Old Testament years on, you'd be going, wait, is there a curse? Is God cursing them? Is there something wrong? Friends, there's nothing wrong. They were actually being faithful to as God has called them to. There were people who loved God. But it was all about God's plan, and God had a perfect timing that to show that he's perfectly in control. So Zechariah is heading into the temple. There's a picture up here of what it would have looked like during that time, during Jesus' time. That's uh, the temple that Harold built. And there's that little gold door. That's the temple. Zechariah goes through that door, and the next picture shows that there's a little uh, altar or uh, incense where he would have knelt down to offer the incense that's required of him. And there's that curtain, and you read the Gospels about the curtain being torn. That's where that would have been. And an angel appears as he's there. It's the angel Gabriel. It's not that any angel. He is the 
angel that is in the presence of God. Uh, this is to show to us who are listening or reading this to say, this message is directly coming from God himself through this angel, and he gives them good news. They're about to have a baby. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. and shall call him John. And from there, we introduce this wonderful, glorious picture of how the angel says to Zechariah and Elizabeth, you will have a child, but not just any child, quite a unique child. You will give his name John. And he goes through a list of things that he's allowed to do or not to. The point of it is that this kid is set apart for ministry, for a particular purpose that God had already planned. Now, I'm not sure what's going on. Maybe in some sense, Zachariah is looking at his own circumstances and realizes he's pretty old or either the incense got to his head, one or the other. And at that moment, he turns around and says, look, I don't know if you realize I'm pretty old. And the angel responds to him and zaps his mouth. He can't speak. Uh, but God is still gracious to him in that moment. See, I love how that's shown. If you know the name John, uh, it means from birth, it's, it means grace. It's, it's, it's to show a favor of God. And that's what's going on right here, even in this uh, moment for this man and this wife. John is not just some random kid that's growing up. He's been called to be set aside for ministry. He's an announcer of who is to come. He will be great. He'll be set aside for ministry. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. That's quite unique. And also the role of the Holy Spirit through the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts is a prominent theme that constantly comes up. And he will have a mission to turn the kids of Israel back to God. What that is, it's like a, it's once again going back to the Old Testament, coming back in to say this is Old Testament language of where a nation has turned away from God and the prophet comes in. And you can read that about in places like in Malachi's chapter 3 to 4. And it's sort of saying, come back. It's come back and return to the God, Yahweh, the one that you worship. So that was part of his role. And he'd be filled with the Spirit. It's come in the power of Elijah. That's not to say that he's going to come reincarnated. It's not Elijah reincarnating back as John the Baptist. This is a story of God's power being on this child as a prophet, uh, proclaiming, calling people back. And it's, a com it's conversion language that's going on. It's to say, repent, turn to God again, turn your hearts to the God that you're meant to worship. But it's also a wonderful picture of God through John restoring broken relationships. You see that language of father and kids. It's to show this idea of uh, those who are disobedient returning to the wisdom that is proclaimed in these words. What is the whole purpose of it? To make ready a people. To make ready a people. What's going on here is to say uh, John the Baptist's role when he's going into ministry to prepare the people for the arrival of the Messiah. It is to prepare the hearts of people before they hear the message of the kingdom that Jesus will preach. And right in the midst of this is to show us listening in that the God of gods is the God of the one who's able to deal with the impossible. Think about it. He's a person who's never had a child. It's been waiting in here. God in his old, their old age promises a child. Have you ever thought that God does not know what it means to deal with impossible? God's dictionary does not have impossible in it. 
because God is the God of the possible and his timing is always perfect. I mean, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth have been waiting for a long time. But God had already planned. This was his plan. He knew what he was going to do. He was showing in a glorious way he was going to provide them a son, a gracious gift. <coughs> Excuse me. Not just a son, but John, who would become John the Baptist. And from then on, we have this picture of uh, Elizabeth becomes pregnant and she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days, verse 25, when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Elizabeth's been heard. And this is a a response, not a bitter response to kind of go, finally, God came through. This is a, God, you are gracious to me. I can't believe you've done this in my old age. It's a response of worship. Friends, this story does not change even for us today. I mean, what about today? I mean, are there things in your life when you look at your circumstances that seems impossible? Are you looking at your circumstance rather than looking through the lens of God who is the God of the possible? Are you looking at the one who can answer and he will answer in his timing? Now, I'm pretty sure, last time I checked, there's no one here in our church. Is that a visit from the angel Gabriel? who promised them that they will have a child uh, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you have, please come and talk to John, Nathan, myself. We'd love to unpack that with you. But in some way, there are many of us are facing circumstances, real circumstances that seems completely out of control, seems impossible. Friends, there's a wonderful reminder in a simple way that God is in control, has always been, and he's very good at dealing with the impossible. And that might mean that he will deal with it, he will answer it, but it might not even be on this side of heaven, but he will answer. But yet we are all called to trust in the gracious one, the God who has, had, has it in hand, the one who's our rescuer, and the one ultimately who looks at those who are humble. A sense of dependence. And so we move on and we meet the next person in verse uh, 27. We meet uh, Mary. Mary comes into the picture. Everyone knows, or if you've grown in the Christian church, you know about Mary. And finally, in verse uh, 27, there's a set, the scene is set. And that scene is once again to, to show that uh, this is not some random thing. So uh, Mary uh, is uh, visited by the angel. Uh, she is told about this good news. She's uh, is to uh, let people know who are listening into the story of the Gospel of Luke that this is part of the big story. Because if you're listening in for the first time, you've never heard anything to do with Jesus, you've never heard anything about the Gospel, and you hear about this John the Baptist in a really miraculous way, there might be a sense of, oh, who is this guy? And then all of a sudden you have this wonderful line talking about the house of David. And if you were listening in, if you were sort of following the Old Testament stuff, you'd be going, oh, house of David, I've heard this before, it's clicking in, who is this? It's to show that this is Jesus, the Messiah. He has arrived. It actually alludes to places like in Isaiah where it talks about uh, he's going to be a child who's born to the son that is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish. So Gabriel is being told a message to tell Mary, this is the one who will hold the Messiah in her womb. She's engaged to Joseph. 
She's a virgin. So once again, we have this other almost impossible aspect. The angel says something interesting to her in the verses that we just read. As he comes and visits her, as he comes and talks to her, he turns around and he says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. It's an interesting thing for a, a Jewish girl to hear. Mary's listening and she, she's pulled back by this. She's going, what? What did he just say? Friends, what's going on here? It's a powerful message of grace. Oh, favored one. It's a gracious message given through the angel to Mary. It's God's favor on her just because, because he's God of grace. If you want to know what grace is, it's just because. God's choosing her. He's chosen for her to hold his son in her womb. This Jesus, the one who means God saves. All of history has been waiting for this. Everyone's been waiting with breath for this moment. Has finally arrived, the Son of the Most High. And this Son will reign. The picture that's given uh, is to show His kingdom will have no end. Is to, to the language of this King who will reign forever. Unlike the King that's mentioned at the start of this Gospel. King Herod, his kingdom is not around anymore. Friends, if you've grown up in the Christian faith, you've heard some of these terms before. You've probably sung songs about it. Does it still capture your heart? Does it still stir your soul? About this King, this Messiah. And if you don't know Jesus, this is to also tell us that Jesus is not just some religious leader. He is God himself. He is God himself. Well, that means that he's also absolutely 100% perfect. And that's shown in the language where, where it talks about the Holy Spirit and God is involved in this. It's to show it's this wonderful mystery to show this is God who's doing it. This is God who's making it happen. Not only that, unlike you and me who are born corrupt, we've got sin and that poison since our birth. This son is 100% perfect. No sin, nothing. He had to be because that's what they've been praying for. That's what they've been waiting for. And God does it. And we have this contrast where... Uh, um, uh, We've got this contrast of Zacharias turning around and he sort of has his mouth shut up. And you have this contrast of Mary who submits and says, I'm a servant of the Lord. So Mary heads to visit her cousin. And she heads to go, uh, go and see this cousin. We have this wonderful picture in verses 39 to 56. As uh, she comes to see her cousin, uh, John, in his mum's room, jumps with joy. That is amazing to consider. It's a wonderful picture. It's like a, all of creation itself is jumping with joy, rejoicing. The Messiah has arrived. We've been waiting. How good is this? And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Her word comes from her and she says, Blessed are you, Mary, and not only you, the fruit that is in your womb. Elizabeth knows this is why it says, why has the, <laughs> the mother of my Lord should come to me? She knows who this is. She knows what's going on. And she responds in praise. And then we conclude with this wonderful praise song from Mary. 
verses 46 to 50. She knows what has happened. She knows that God has looked at a humble estate. She's cho- he's chosen Mary, not a queen in a palace. She's shown mercy. Everything's starting to sink into her heart, I reckon. She knows what's happening is this contrast language of God shows mercy to those who fear him. God shows strength to those who are broken. God opposes the proud and he says that the proud are scattered, their hearts are scattered, the mighty thrones have been thrown down, the humble are lifted, the rich are empty. This is a glorious picture of how our great God works. He actually is against the proud and prideful. He lifts those who are humble. Haven't we seen that so so far in the story? A barren woman, an old parents, Mary, a virgin. In light of that, God does this wonderful picture and glorious picture that he's been painting for a long time and has now come to fruition. He's fulfilling his gracious mercies that he's promised. Friends, God has always been at work. And he's been guiding all of history to this moment in the Gospel of Luke that we've been waiting for in salvation history. You know what? Like always, God begins with an impossible scenario. Absolutely impossible. A barren old woman? A child that's going to be spirit-filled from birth? A virgin who becomes pregnant? For nothing is impossible for God. Our God does not use a king in a palace or a queen. He just uses ordinary people that was part of his plan. And you know what? That is impossible. You know what's more impossible? Your sin, my sin has been piling up for a long time. How can we be saved? How can we have salvation? What is that going to even be possible? How is this going to be possible, God? I don't know how you're going to fix this. And God says, here. I'll show you what I'll do with the impossible. Here is my son. Friends, what that means for us today, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been a follower recently or a long time, for many years, have you lost sight the length our Savior went to to save you and me. Does that still capture your heart or is it for those people out there who don't know Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you explored through these truths again to make sure that you are without certainty you know what you believe? And friends, don't forget, we cannot have a gospel without a person. We cannot have a gospel if we don't have Jesus. Otherwise, it would just be a religious group. And if you don't know Jesus, and if you're listening in and you don't know Jesus, look, I've got to be honest with you, this story sounds wacky. Some virgin, angel, sounds crazy. Yep, totally right, it does sound crazy. But don't shut it off. Do what Luke did, take it into account, study it, investigate it for yourself, come to an informed decision. Don't become to a decision based on your assumptions, but if you do investigate it for what it is, you will be changed. 
And in light of this, I want to leave some applications to you as we finish this morning. One, something to consider this week. Do you have certainty in what you've been taught? And I don't mean uh, for those of you who have grown up in the church just to regurgitate the information. Do you have certainty? Do you believe this for yourself? This is why Nathan came and showed that Gospel Luke. We want you to go into it. We want you to dive into it and wrestle with it, meditate on it, marinate in it. And one of the ways we encourage that, if you're not in a life group or a small group, please, can I encourage you to be involved? If you don't know how to be involved in that, grab Nathan. He'd love to talk to you about that. Secondly, talked about the impossible. What circumstances are you in currently right now where things just seem impossible? Are you looking that through God's eyes? Are you looking it through your lens? Maybe you need to give it to him. Friends, we as a leadership, our prayer is this, that you and I as a church never, ever, ever lose the grandeur and might and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we want you to read about it. This is why we want you to marinate in it. This is why you want to sing about it. This is why we want you to trust in the God who is our rescuer. And finally, remember the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is for the humble. If the gospel, if this Christian faith is making you more prideful, you need to get back to the reality of what the gospel is about. The gospel should actually make you more and more humble. That's a wonderful reminder for us as we read through this. So, will you join with us as we go through the Gospel of Luke? Would you pray through it? Read it. If you've got questions, come and chat to us. It's a waste way to do it. I'm going to invite the music team to come up. And I'm going to ask us to pray. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace shown to us through generation after generation to the point that you sent your son in such a miraculous way. We pray for us as a church as we unpack and uncover over the next few weeks this truth. Refresh our hearts, challenge us, convict us. Please grant us grace never to lose sight of the depth and weight of your grace that you pursued us. In Jesus' name, amen.